0: So in real estate, you often hear people say, like, just follow the artist and you'll make really good investments. And believe it or not, it's, it's true. It's just that unless you had a, a big brother surveillance system, like you wouldn't be able to accurately track that at scale. And that's why a lot of people who invest using that that strategy end up being hyper-local, meaning they get a couple of deals every once in a while and they can't really take advantage of the sort of revitalization aspect. Whereas with our platform, we can essentially jump from neighborhood to neighborhood constantly and constantly have that high rate of return.
1: This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies. To help you learn about the business, and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Jerry Chu. Jerry is the CEO and co-founder of Lofty AI, a prop tech startup company in the Bay Area that uses artificial intelligence to predict rapidly appreciating locations. He'll share with us how his software is able to accurately predict these locations and how they're so confident in their business model that They'll partner with investors on the deal and will guarantee their loss if the deal isn't profitable in three years If you enjoy this episode subscribe to the show and leave a review We release episodes every wednesday and sunday and release the show notes on our site everythingrei.com. Enjoy All right, so thanks so much for coming on the show today Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are
0: and what do you do? Hi guys, uh, so my name is jerry. I am the founder and current ceo of lofty ai Um, And we're a real estate technology company, um, a startup based out here um, in Oakland. And what we do is we help people, including uh, investors, but also homeowners, um, buy properties that are vetted by an AI algorithm. And the AI believes these properties have the highest likelihood of experiencing rapid appreciation over the next few years. And if you were to purchase any of these uh, properties, you can partner up with us. And in exchange for giving you this information and also guaranteeing the price, the purchase price for you, Um, all you have to do is give up a portion of your future appreciation to us. And so essentially, if you make a lot of money, we make a lot of money. And if you lose money, well, we don't like it when our customer lose money. So we literally cover your downside for you.
1: That's actually really interesting. Okay, so go ahead and tell us how you even got started with this.
0: Yeah, so that's a pretty long story. The company didn't get started on this business model. We started the company a little over a year ago. It was actually June 2018, so um, last year. And essentially, how this whole thing started is stemmed from a personal project originally. Um, So I had worked in finance before, and I was always building sort of, um, you know, my own automated trading algorithms um, just for fun. I think... um, In a lot of cases, uh, a sort of bot is more disciplined than a human can be. You know, they don't have sort of greed or fear built in. So if you have a good strategy, um, having that in an automated trading algorithm tends to perform a lot better than if you you know, as as a human actually just did day trading yourself and also frees up a lot of time so you can go do other things. Um, so I was doing that before and I really like the capital markets because you have a lot of um, stocks and derivatives that can move a very large percentage in a short amount of time. Um, and so if a market even temporarily was pretty inefficient, you can capture a lot of alpha that way. Um, and so I was, believe it or not, never really interested in, um, real estate originally i thought it was one of those things where it's a relatively you know much safer asset you can live in it you can rent it out for cash flows but because of that um it's typically what you know low risk low reward um but at one point i was living in the arts district in los angeles and this was quite a few years ago um and just for fun i don't know what prompted me to do it but i was on zillow and i was looking at property prices in my building um, and I noticed that the unit I was renting at that time literally doubled in price in four years, pretty much. It went from around seven hundred, I think like forty thousand dollars to like almost being like one point four million. And that was just like that hit me really hard. I was like, Wow, I didn't know real estate can move, like grow that quickly in terms of, uh, of value. And so I started, you know, I'm a curious guy, I started researching, diving into it to see if it was an anomaly just with my unit or if, it, if there's something more to it. Well, it turns out there was more to it. And it wasn't just my unit. It was a bunch of other units in the same building as well as a bunch of other units in different buildings. Um, and the only thing that all of them kind of shared in common was that they were all within roughly like 0.5 miles in, in radius and distance to each other. Um, and obviously not all of them doubled in price, but the the commonality was they all appreciated much higher than what you typically expect to see. Um, and so, you know, I got really hooked on this and basically didn't sleep that night and spent like the next basically 10 hours just staying up researching to see what causes and what leads to this type of um Uh, growth in an area. And basically, it turns out that if a neighborhood is kind of undergoing revitalization, if you will, um, there's a very specific time period, typically between three to five years, where that neighborhood starts seeing an exponential growth curve on most of the properties within it. Um, And when I say a neighborhood, I mean a very granular space, so 0.3 to 0.5 miles in radius. Um, And so it turns out I just happened to be living in a neighborhood that was experiencing that sort of, um, J-curve of growth. And so that's why all the properties went up in value so much. Um, so then it became a no-brainer of the next step. Well, how how do you forecast this? How do you kind of, at least at a bare minimum, if you can't predict it, how do you detect it in real time so you can at least kind of get in somewhat early? Um, as so I started building this as kind of like a passion side project. And then simultaneously, I was uh, working at an, uh, another startup with my uh, now co-founder, Max. Um, and, you know, I built the prototype to this. And at that point, there was no AI component to it, and there was no prediction capabilities, but it had the ability to um, use what I call, you know, alternative data to essentially detect this phenomenon of uh, neighborhood revitalization. And when I say alternative data, I'll give you guys some concrete examples. Um, I can't give everything away because that's part of the moat, but, um, you know, it ranges from things like the type of dog breeds in, in a neighborhood. So for example, if the number of French bulldogs in an area starts increasing over time, uh, what that typically means is that, you know, they're really expensive um, pets to, to pay for and buy. And so what that tells you is there's people with a really high disposable income who can spend a few thousand dollars on their pet purchase starting to move into this area. And if your area is typically, you know, um, high crime sort of undesirable neighborhood, that's a very significant indicator that the neighborhood is undergoing some sort of change. Um, Some other interesting factors are like um, weather patterns, um, as well as uh, something people might not notice, but it, it probably is part of their subconscious purchase decision. But the average high temperature a neighborhood can see Um, is highly correlated to how expensive properties are in a neighborhood. But for some weird reason, the low temperatures a neighborhood can see has pretty much zero correlation to, uh, prices in that neighborhood. So this is what I mean by alternative data. And we also throw in, um, a lot of like satellite imagery and Google Street View, things like that. Um, as well as we can tell from people's sort of, um, you know, the, the topics that they tweet about on Twitter and things like that. Um, it's not a perfect estimate, but we can essentially edu- uh, estimate people's education levels and, and things like that. And those all have uh, a correlation and they're really good indicators, leading indicators to kind of projecting price into the future. Um, so we use data like that, and I was able to build a prototype um, that would essentially show neighborhoods um, via a heat map. right So if you guys have ever seen it, it's basically a map of the US. And if an area is seeing a lot of like growth in these activities, it would light up. And when I first saw it, I remember, you know, there were way more of these neighborhoods than I originally anticipated. And that's when it kind of hit me. It's like, wow, I could possibly start a business from doing this because, you know, originally I had kind of thought that, Maybe I discover some really cool, like, secret in the in the data and real estate space, and that maybe one day when I had the money to invest in my own properties, I would use this as a um, you know secret weapon, and I'd do better than other sort of uh, individual real estate investors. And that in reality, only a very few neighborhoods were experiencing growth like this. Um, but it turns out that in reality, is way more than one person or one company can take advantage of. Um, And so I built the prototype and one day Max and I were alone at the office and I was kind of bored. So I just told him like, hey, do you want to see this thing I was working on? Um, And he loved it. And we both quit the next week and uh, started the company together. Um, And, you know, we didn't start out with our current business model. Uh, The most obvious thing at that point was if we had all these cool predictions, we should sell this to real estate investment funds and, um, you know, development firms and things like that, um, they could really leverage this data to make smarter decisions um, and really, you know, uh, get a higher return on their investment. Um, So that's where we started originally. But uh, we learned a couple of things, you know, over our time kind of talking to customers in that space. And, um, you know, there were a couple of reasons, but two primary reasons made it seem like a pretty unattractive market for us as far as growth is concerned. Um, one of them was the sales cycle, so we were actually able to sell to some really big uh, names in the in the space. But uh, it took essentially six months for us to land the the deal. And when we talked to other people, they were like, "Wow, six months! They must have really loved you and wanted to jump on this." Like typically, it takes it can take up to a year. And we're like, "Wow, okay, we we don't want to be in a business where the sales cycle can take us." a year to do. Um, and then on top of that, we were making uh, predictions when we first launched a platform to enterprise customers. And, you know, fast forward, uh, essentially at that time, five, six months. So it wasn't a really long time. Um, but we essentially noticed some of the neighborhoods, to give you a more concrete example, we predict uh, projected that Compton in Los Angeles was going to be um, a hot, growing neighborhood. And we remember pitching this to our enterprise customers and they basically laughed at us in the meeting room and it was like, oh yeah, like we'll just sell all of our buildings and go develop in Compton, like basically they they didn't believe it because of the stigma attached to the neighborhood. Um, but you know, fast forward five months into the future and we were observing our data and the properties in that area, some of the properties we were tracking appreciated by 18% in five months and rent in that neighborhood we projected went up by 30%. And again, this This is not all of Compton because even Compton is still a relatively big city. We're talking about a 0.3 to 0.5 mile granular sort of circular neighborhood within Compton. And relative to other neighborhoods in Compton, um, you know, the one we predicted was growing essentially, like, I think it went, it came down at that point to 1800% faster than the other Compton neighborhoods. Um, so essentially, we were just, we just realized, we we're like, hey, we're leaving a lot of money on the table by just selling our predictions to other people. Um, we need to find some way to get skin in the game and, and somehow benefit directly from this. Um and so we ended up essentially realizing that we don't have a lot of uh, capital. We're not a huge real estate fund. We're a small startup. And so we didn't have millions of dollars to invest in properties ourselves. So that's what led us down to this current business model where we thought what is some way where it could essentially leverage our technical expertise, our AI, our data, um, and partner up with existing home buyers and, you know, real estate investors who specifically only invest in, um, you know, single family residential homes. So that that could be like an individual house or a condo or a town home or something like that. Um, and, and just partner up with these people and try to get a portion of the upside and then, you know if we end up being right then that's great we we make money um and if we end up being wrong we'll figure out some way to compensate people so that they can actually trust us um and ultimately that's how we ended up with our existing business model
1: that's super interesting thank you so much for sharing your story and of course there is a lot of questions that uh need to be followed up because of all Mm -hmm. the things you told us today wow just amazing like how did you guys even figure out some of these alternative things
0: to put into your model in the first place a lot of it came down, believe it or not, that like myself and my wife were kind of like hipsters ourselves. So we kind of noticed certain things was like, oh, like, you know, this neighborhood is not typically very nice, but we just read something or some like a friend referred us to something and we're like, oh, but it has this like really cool like cafe that has like, uh, you know, old like motorcycles inside. And it's just like one of those super hipster trendy, um, like coffee shops or something like that. And we would find it super early. We would go and we would make it like a habit. Like every Saturday, we would literally drive out of our way to go to a neighborhood just to go to that like coffee shop, just to have breakfast there. And over time, we would notice that it became more and more crowded. And we would notice like more and more other like businesses similar to that opening up in an area. And next thing you know, after essentially a very short period of time, like eight months to to a year, essentially like that neighborhood at least that sort of two-block radius was completely transformed. Um, And you started seeing, like, you know, a a lot of, like, wealthier people, like you can tell from the make and model of cars in the area, like just complete different um, uh, scene. And so that's kind of how I got the hint. A lot of it was trial and error initially. But for me, it was always the North Star was, you know, what indicators – could I track, could I use data, um, you know, that I can get online to essentially tell me where the hipsters are going to, right? So in real estate, you often hear people say, like, you know, just follow the artist, and you'll make really good investments. And believe it or not, it's it's true. It's just that, you know, uh, unless you had a, a big brother surveillance system, like, you wouldn't be able to accurately track that at scale. And that's why a lot of people who invest using that that strategy end up being hyper-local, meaning they get a couple of deals every once in a while and they can't really take advantage of, of the sort of revitalization aspect. Whereas with our platform, um, we can essentially jump from neighborhood to neighborhood constantly and constantly have that high rate of return um, you know, because people who are artists and you know, hipsters or whatnot, they leave very specific um, you know, online footprints essentially. And this is all publicly available data.
1: I mean, people back then when they were investing in Oakland, they were super scared to invest in there. But suddenly, Mm -hmm. like a Starbucks started showing up. You would see people rollerblading in the middle of the day where usually people would not want to be there at all times of the day. And actually, I I heard on another podcast, they were saying that the government should subsidize hipster living because when hipsters move to a certain location, that location tends to boom in economic power.
0: (laughs) Yeah, precisely. And a lot of it comes down to you know, we've studied this phenomenon a lot, and the revitalization process can be largely um, defined in two big waves. But you know, typically, the second wave is what people hear about, like, that's when you start reading about it on blogs, your friends start telling you, and you see it on a newspaper saying like this is the next up and coming neighborhood of the city right by that point everyone kind of knows and the wealthier people start moving in that's when they bid up you know rent prices and um, and property prices but what actually causes an area to be cool in the first place is actually uh, by people who kind of are the first wave of people that move into that area and they move in there not because they're wealthy themselves. Typically, they're moving in there because they've been priced out of other neighborhoods. Um, but these people are, like I mentioned, you know, artists, and a lot of times they're college graduates. So they're well educated. Um, there are a lot of times like freelancers and, and, and creatives and th- uh, people like that. Um, and they're moving into these areas because they don't have huge disposable income. Um, but now this neighborhood is getting an influx of people that bring a lot of skill set and creativity to the area that they live in and they start forming like a community and that's when you see like the cool art murals and the cool local businesses like the coffee shop that is a local favorite before you know and probably even after starbucks shows up but it's essentially leading in the sense that if you look for coffee shops like this you do better than if you look for Starbucks. um and essentially that's kind of how that first wave develops and after that, that's when that neighborhood gets a certain vibe. And when new people come to that area, they say, wow, I didn't know this was here. I didn't know that this area was actually kind of nice. Um, and that's what a lot of times leads the second wave of migration where people go, yeah, I, I could totally see myself living here. It's actually really nice. And it's way cheaper than you know, this other area that I'm currently living in. And so um, that's essentially how the, the overall process kind of happens.
1: But it's also so interesting because you're looking at really kind of obscure data points, like how many people own French bulldogs in the area. Like, how do you even find that? I don't think there's a census where people ask you, hey, what kind of pet do you own? What kind of type is it?
0: Oh, people absolutely adore. Um, their pets. And so they love bragging about them and post photos of them online. And we essentially have um, a computer vision model where it can literally just go in and scan images of dogs and tell what type of dogs they are. And we just count that over time. Um, So things like that. So we create a lot of our own data set, we translate pictures and text stuff into uh, numbers that are actually useful for um, a deep learning based approach.
1: Jeez, so you guys are out there scanning, let's say, Instagram, taking the metadata or the tags of the locations, and if there's a
0: lot of, like, French bulldogs in a certain location, you guys know, hey, this is the place to be? Yeah, essentially, um, you know, except it's not really us doing it. Like, a human wouldn't have the scale of doing that. We have uh, essentially what we call um, a data ingestion engine, and that just crawls the web constantly. And also, uh, we're able to combine, there are some paid... um, data vendors out there where you could buy data as well. So a combination of APIs and sort of web crawling is how we are able to get all of our data.
1: Yeah, but you guys have been creating that software program to create that web crawler,
0: right? Correct. But it's been deployed and it's pretty stable. So we haven't, you know, it was a lot of upfront investment, but after it's done, we haven't had to make a, you know, too many tweaks to a sense.
1: So can you go ahead and give me a timeline of, I guess, when you decided to start this thing, when you created your because, because there's lots of, it's so many components to it, right? It's not just, oh, I will create a business model that says this is a heat map, yeah. all the good stuff. What's the timeline from when you decided I'm going to do this to to now?
0: Uh, to me, it seems like forever, but uh, probably to to you and the audience, it, it doesn't seem like that long. Um, but so again, we started in June of last year. So I kind of started on this project before we officially incorporated the company. Um, so it took much longer to build than that. But essentially around two, three months after we Uh, started the company was when the sort of very first prototype version could actually be used and kind of sold to um, enterprise customers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was around like September, October is when we could start um, gathering sort of feedback from the industry to see what they want to see on a platform. Mm -hmm. And initially, it was literally, it had no features other than the heat map. And you know, our intuition was just say, hey, it's super easy to use, you just look at this map. And instead of researching all these other areas with no heat on it, you find where's the hottest area. And you only, you know, kind of focus your time and attention to look for opportunities in that area specifically. And that would save, you know, these um, large investment funds, um, probably hundreds and hundreds of hours in research and just wasted labor hours and consequently save them a lot of time and money as well. Um, but we quickly learned that, you know, that was and a compelling enough model. So we started building in other features to the platform. Um, you know, they could search for different areas and it was still mostly a heat map base, but there were also a lot of other features they can kind of play around. And, you know, when the whole Opportunity Zone craze came out, we overlaid that. So you can now find organically growing neighborhoods that would also just happen to be an opportunity zone, which then became a really good investment opportunity. Um, so a lot of our, uh, customers really love that feature. So things like that. And then we applied to Y Combinator, um, which is a tech accelerator based out here. Um, well, they're actually their HQs in Mountain View, but they also have an office in SF. Um, so it was kind of a dream for us to get into this, um, Tech Accelerator, because for us, we always looked at our business as a tech first, real estate second type of business. Um, And so in May, we interviewed and essentially got accepted into Y Combinator summer 19 batch. Um, And then from there, once we got in, Y Combinator was hugely instrumental in kind of like guiding us and really Giving us a lot of confidence to, uh, to to say like, hey, you know, I we know you're making revenue in this other model, but you have something really cool and interesting here. And based on you know your backtesting everything, if this accuracy rate continues in the future, you should be a bit more ambitious and think about how you can leverage this internally for your own use as opposed to kind of selling it. Like our 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 fees were somewhat expensive, but relative to how much money you could make from these properties actually going up in value, it was a very small portion of that. And so um, that, that was essentially in, from May to July was when we're starting to think about pivoting the business model. And ultimately, uh, in July, we decided, and it was a really hard decision, because again, we were making um, pretty good revenue from our other you know, SaaS platform. Um, and we just decided to throw all that away. Um, and if customers have an existing contract with us, we still maintain that platform for them. And so we still today have enterprise customers using it, but we no longer market that platform or, or sell it anymore. And after the contracts, um, Timeline is all over. We're going to shut down that platform. And so, long answer (laughs) to a small question was around July was when we pivoted into this uh, new business model.
1: Dude, that's super exciting. So, how was that Y Combinator experience? I mean, I think it's a dream for most startups to be able to be accepted into that accelerator program.
0: Definitely, it was everything we expected and more. Um, You know, they're accepting a lot more companies than they used to, but they're pretty smart about how to, you know, keep the small feel of groups and the you form with like um, other startup founders like some of these people are my pretty much only friends in the bay area <laughs> like i moved up from los angeles which was originally where we started the company and you know being really busy with my business other than my co-founder and my employees i don't really have any friends up in the bay area and going through yc all my friends are now basically other uh, yc startup founders and you really create this strong bond Believe it or not, at one point, we're thinking of maybe not doing YC after getting accepted, uh, getting the call. And if I had a time machine, I would literally go back in time and slap myself in the face (laughs) for even thinking about that.
1: (laughs) All right, don't worry. I'm in the Bay Area too. We can go hang out sometime.
0: Yeah, will do. Always looking for new people to hang out.
1: (laughs) So right now, is it just you and your buddy, Max, who was on the team? Or do you have more
0: people in your group now? We have um, essentially five people in total. Um, We actually do have uh, two employees working remotely in Los Angeles, um, and then Max, myself, uh, and one other employee, we work out of the SF office. And we actually, as of today, made a new hire. So we'll have another engineer joining us uh, starting next Monday. So it'll be four people working outside of the o- out of the Oakland office. What are those six positions and what are the roles that everyone has? Uh, pretty much, again, we're more of a tech company than actually a real estate company. Um, so most of the roles are um, software engineering, heavy, heavy data science and not the data science where you can do some sort of just you know typical statistical analysis, but the subset of data science where you can actually build machine learning models and start building um, certain you know AI um, architectures, you have to be uh, really familiar with all the different works. Like we're not at the pinnacle of the industry where we invent new neural networks that can perform better than the previous one, um, but you have to at least be good enough to understand how all of them work differently, which ones the best use case for what you're trying to do and always keep updated in the industry so that when a better sort of architecture comes out that can deliver better results, you're able to leverage that almost immediately. Um, so pretty much everyone on the team is technical, um, except for Max and he pretty much handles all of the business side, sales, marketing, you know, name it, um, customer service, like everyone, we, we kind of all wear multiple hats right now. And at some point, um, you know, because of the new product protecting people's downside, literally 100% of it, you know, we had a lot of uh, influx in terms of interest. And like everyone had to temporarily become like customer service and sales reps, uh, you know, so oh, it's a small team. But you know, we've, we've selected some really good team members so far. And are you guys self funded? Or how are you paying for all this? It started out, last year as a sort of friends and family round. That was the, the earliest ones. Um, and it wasn't a lot of money. It was literally like $30,000 to start. Um, but the great thing about mainly being a software company is that software typically is pretty cheap to build. Um. So that actually, thirty thousand dollars was able to last Max and myself, uh, the company, for quite a bit. Since the co-founders were not taking a salary at that point, um, and then we were, you know, as as time went on and we had revenue to prove our traction, and we could more and more show the accuracy of. Of our AI, we were able to raise more money, so we raised um, uh, around like four hundred eighty thousand dollars, and that includes the investment YC gives you. So that's the money we had going into YC, and uh, we had a really low burn um, throughout the whole summer. We kind of all stayed in the same house. If you ever watched the show Silicon Valley, that was kind of how our company was. And so because of that, our our cost per month was like ten thousand dollars or less at that point, point. Um, and so going through that, we still had the bulk of our money left. And now post YC, we're raising our seed round, which is $1 million in total. Um, And we pretty much closed a big chunk of it already. So we're just uh, trying to close out the rest and then get back to work.
1: Congratulations. I'm sure you able to raise it really quickly. I mean, from what it sounds like, it sounds like an amazing product. And if you're able to make it really work, then you're going to for sure make way more than a million dollars.
0: Yeah, we we noticed the industry is pretty interesting. Like um, a lot of it is especially at the early stages because there's not a whole lot of like tangible documentation the company can provide either on the traction or the sort of forecast side of things. It's really hard to invest based on metrics and data. So a lot of investors look at the founders and their background and whether they think this team can succeed. Um, and there's a huge bias to, you know founders that have been successful previously. So if you've kind of started a company, uh, before and were able to sell it to like Google for $20 million or something like that. And then you start another company, it becomes much easier for you to raise money. Um, whereas for us both, uh, well, at least for me mainly, I'm I'm a first time uh, founder in a tech company. And I didn't know the ecosystem or like anything at all. I kind of like to just bury my head and, and work on our own company and not really worry too much about the Silicon Valley space. Um, but you know, it turns out like if they look at my background and my resume and things like that, like it's not really actually in technology. I taught myself how to code. And so I didn't have the uh, reputation of being like, oh, I went to Berkeley and dropped out when I was 19, you know, or like I'm a Stanford uh, PhD studying like computer science. Like I didn't have any of that. And I didn't have the uh, being a two-time or third-time founder. Um, So it was actually pretty tough in the beginning. And YC definitely helped out a lot. I, um, you know, just based on our experience fundraising, like I would say last like June, last like September, around that time, um, versus how quickly we're able to raise funding now post YC, it's um, it's a whole different world. Um, and so that's another reason why you know other startup founders, if you're kind of hesitating, you should really take advantage of YC's program.
1: I think finishing a YC. Do you call it graduating? I don't even
0: know. Yeah, it it, it kind of is. It's like going to school again for three months. When
1: you complete the YC program, I'm pretty sure that is more than equivalent than a PhD at Stanford. You know, oh, this company went through YC is better than, oh, these random founders are from Stanford PhD
0: program. To to investors, I'm sure that might be the case. To Stanford PhDs, I'm sure they'll debate you on that all day.
1: (laughs) Of course, of course. So how are you even validating your data? You
0: guys are such a relatively new company. So we have like three different ways, essentially, right? Um, so the oldest, if you want to go back like 50 years, 10 years, like very long time um, frame, a lot of the data sources we used didn't even exist back then, right? So like, you know, certain companies didn't, uh, it didn't even exist, so there was no way to get data like this. But essentially, the industry kind of has been our validation. Like what I was telling you about people saying, follow the artist. That's been around for a very long time, and people have done incredibly well as a result of that. So that, you know, they might not notice it, but what they're doing is leveraging alternative data. They're using data that otherwise isn't so obvious. Like why is an artist where an artist lives predictive of real estate prices, right? That doesn't seem like the first thing you should be looking for when building um, a prediction model. And so uh, the industry has vetted a huge portion of that um, in terms of long-time of historical data. Um, as far as like historical data going back to five years, um, you know, there's been a lot of actually research done on this. So there was a report, I think it came out of Duke, I believe, where it was tracking um, these uh, 14 different sort of uh, neighborhoods under revitalization between 06 and 09. And they noticed something super interesting, which was that um, during this time period, not only did none of the neighborhoods actually see a decline in value in terms of average real estate prices there. Um, They actually all went up. The worst performing neighborhood was in um, Detroit between 06 and 09. And even that neighborhood actually went up 0.4%. And so another neighborhood was Baltimore. And I believe between 06 and 09, um, you can see actually went up by 5%. And so, you know, if you had actually invested in these Revitalizing neighborhoods um, before two thousand seven, you would have actually been net positive throughout the uh, you know the last recession, uh, which is crazy. And so these neighborhoods tend to have these very interesting unique properties um, to them, and so we're able to backtest using a lot of other people's research data and research reports as well. Um, and then finally, you know if. Uh, if a platform has been around for a certain number of years, we're able to get historical data ourselves. And then we can just backtest, you know, the past three years, um, and and so on and so forth. And so that's more of a concrete backtesting that we as a company can do internally. So we can see, you know, what we would have predicted over the last three years. And a lot of those predictions, um, we can measure it concretely, like where we, uh, for, for these is binary, essentially, right? So when we forecast a neighborhood you're either right about it or you're wrong about it right there's no kind of like it's not one of those um algorithms that tells you like oh the R square is like eighty six percent or something that comes later. Um, so as far as determining the neighborhoods using our own historical data, um, we can see that we have a really high accuracy rate, uh, roughly ninety eight percent. You know over you know Southern California specifically, as well as a few of the other states that we we currently do this business model out of. Um, and essentially, we forecast area first, and if it has in fact after three years gone up really high in value then we deem that to be a correct prediction and if it has gone up in value but actually not gone up very rapidly or gone up in value by a lot um, you know so on average we see in our neighborhoods you can see 40 to 60 percent average appreciation not compounded after 60 uh, after three years Um, and so if neighborhood only sees like a 5% increase or 10% increase on average, after three years, we deem that to be um, a, a false uh, false positive, essentially. And so uh, that's how we derive our accuracy results. And then after that, we have a secondary algorithm, which uses a similar set of data. Um, but then we combine it with specific property details. So like, you know, the square footage, the number of bedrooms and bathrooms, some basic information about properties currently for sale in that area. Um, And we can essentially uh, then detect if the property is overvalued or undervalued. And essentially on our platform, our recommendations are properties that are in these hot areas that are also undervalued. um, And that should theoretically, at least statistically speaking, give the high, that property a higher chance to appreciate over the next three years than other properties. And so um, we can basically use the same model and just go backwards in time and figure out if we were right or wrong at each of the uh, timeframes. And that's how we're able to be so confident.
1: So just to summarize, you're basically looking for properties that within a three-year time span of your prediction will go up about 50%.
0: Yeah, essentially, so forty to to sixty percent range. Um, I mean, you know, if it goes up like thirty nine percent, we'll probably also <laughs> include it in there. It's it's high enough. It's about relative to other areas, right? So if overall the market is not doing well, and you know, other er- neighborhoods are tanking, and our areas are going up ten percent, we. You know, relative to another area going down negative 10%, that's still a a great um, sort of improvement, uh, relatively speaking. And so we would count things like that as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And then when you're saying that this property is under market value, are you saying that you're only looking at properties that are on the market, or are you looking at like all properties in a territory?
0: Um, Well, so. In terms of historical data and kind of testing our own results, um, we look at pretty much all the properties that have been sold over that time frame, right? Um, in terms of what our customer currently sees today, its properties that are currently available for sale. Otherwise, you know, if you're interested in buying something, but you know, the property isn't on the market, it makes it, even if it's a great opportunity, it makes it kind of hard for you to act right away.
1: But basically it's like, here, this area is good. Try to find homes in this area.
0: essentially yeah so we'll basically show you like four properties in a very granular region and say and we rank them for you but pretty much any of the four um you know that you take a look at if the condition is also good is an incredibly good buy um as far as our ai is concerned
1: i'm just curious too because i i I mentioned this in another podcast but i did some small ai stuff before my past i was Mm -hmm. trying to learn how to do self-driving car technology so we use convolutional neural networks Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, you're just basically putting data into this black box, this neural network that you're creating, and then it spits out an answer, right? It spits out one direction or another, like turn left, turn right, accelerate or decelerate.
0: Yeah.
1: I guess in your case, you guys were saying yes or no, right? That's like your output is goodbye, bad bye in this location.
0: Yeah and we we do use convolutional neural networks as well but that's more for the beginning part when I was talking about you know sometimes a lot of our data are raw images and we use that to detect certain features so it's- you know, we extract information from a photo using that technique. But our uh, main algorithm is just your typical um, deep neural network that can, you know, predict on something that's supervised. In this case, it's uh, a binary result of yes or no for neighborhoods. And then the next step is supervised on actual um, home prices that have been sold recently. And so we can tell um, if our predictions are correct or incorrect.
1: So I'm just trying to understand from like a business perspective, what do you guys need more data scientists for if you're essentially just collecting data and then putting it into these black boxes?
0: Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, that's essentially like in a one sentence summary what happens. But there's a lot of like feature engineering, data cleaning and a lot of like statistical analysis that hap- has to happen at the beginning before you even start feeding the data in. Um, otherwise, you know, you're kind of just like it because it's so Uh, sort of black box like you could feed in a bunch of things and it's not working and you don't know why it's not working maybe some of the data you're feeding in is actually really good and predictive but it's being essentially there's a lot of noise and it's being corrupted by other data that you're feeding in there but you don't know which one is which right and so it makes a lot of sense before you do, um, even feed it into a neural network to run your basic sort of regression analysis, things like that, clustering algorithms, and really kind of like look at all the da- data you have and see if anything is meaningful It's in raw form. And if not, try some feature engineering, right? Maybe it's not the... Um, like, for example, if something too granular occurs, like the type of French bulldogs actually doesn't predict, um, you know, prices in the future, right? Because uh, things change constantly. Um, let's say down the, down the line, that data point no longer is useful, then something to do is instead of counting just a specific dog breeds, because that might be too specific, you can count just, you know, the number of Pets in that area, maybe the number itself is um, correlated to pricing or something like that, like something with pet owners causing neighborhoods to to go up in value. Um, and so these are all feature engineering, where you could take your um, raw data and like do some basic mathematical manipulation and essentially come up with a, a different set of data from the raw form. And so all of this has to happen at the beginning, and it's. Uh, what you need people who are you know experts in that area to do otherwise it becomes you know you can't just have a neural network and start feeding in stuff and you know occasionally that might end up working but most of the time you won't get the best results and you also won't even know why you're not getting the best results which makes it really hard to improve upon it
1: yeah i mean that's the frustrating part it's like you don't know what's important and what's not important because um, your network itself creates these random weights Mm-hmm. that you can't even decipher oh, yeah. you know by reading it so like yeah how, how would you even know if French Bulldogs all of a sudden have no correlation to your appreciation of value.
0: Yeah, so that's why you have to just monitor the uh, walk forward sort of result of your model constantly. Um, and that's why you have to constantly retrain the model based on new data so you can see how the accuracy is adjusting. And then from time to time, you have to basically go back to the first step and break down your sources again using the new sort of data you've gathered and see if that's still uh, if there's still some sort of correlation. Um, to mm. that specific data source alone by itself,
1: so it seems like you're a pretty bright dude, but you didn't learn cs in school. How did you kind of how did you learn all this stuff, and how long ago did you start
0: learning it? Um, I started learning it while I was um, you know working in um, quantitative risk management. I was um, looking into like building you know trading algorithms. Um, and so, that's kind of how I first started with programming. Um, and then from there, I was still not super comfortable because the programming I did was mostly mathematical, right? So it's like, you know, I was building functions, but within the functions, I was just literally hard coding mathematical algorithms in there that I knew how to do like with pen and paper. And I would just like translate that um, into in, into software. Um, and then, you know, but I had no knowledge of how to use APIs, how to get data, how to like deal with databases or, or cloud infrastructure or anything like that. Um, and I guess to sum it all up, it's just like, I guess, trial by fire. If you really want to do something and, you know, you just end up making a decision like, I'm just going to do it myself instead of relying on someone else. Um, it's incredibly frustrating in the beginning. Uh, the learning curve is really high, but once you kind of get past a certain area, it's almost hard to tell when it happened. Your level of learning becomes accelerated because I have to literally do everything from scratch myself. Um, like one project, I would learn probably like 20 new things about software programming just from doing like one project for fun. Um, I would learn all different aspects of programming, front end, back end, all of that stuff. Um, and then as, as you your knowledge in that level kind of progresses, it just gets faster and faster as you learn. And so for me, it really, I didn't do any coding boot camps. I literally just kind of Google my way um, into stuff. Like I knew basic things like classes and functions. So it was just like, how do you write a function in Python? And there's an example, and you replace that function with things you do just to test. out like, oh, what happens if I change this one variable? What happens if I do this, right? And you just kind of do trial and error over and over again. And, you know, you're going to get a lot of mistakes. And the, um, you know, interpreter is going to tell you that and uh, give you a lot of uh, errors as a result. Um, and you just kind of read it. It's like, oh, so line 129, like, I don't know what's going on. You start, like, copy and pasting the error into google just to see if someone else had the same problem as you and it's funny that like 99 percent of the time that actually works someone probably had the exact same error and someone else will have told them how to fix it and so that was a big component of it Um, just kind of the community being so helpful um, for each other and then eventually as you get better you no longer need to do that you can kind of read it yourself and be like oh i didn't do that or like oh i accidentally did this Um, so just really like challenging yourself essentially and and not being too scared. Like people are, it's really weird. I noticed some people who first start coding and learning how to code, they're like scared to run their program. Like, oh, what if something bad happens and they're like bugs out? You know, you're not responsible for like the federal reserves, like, you know, uh, setting their benchmark rates. Like you're, no one's making you do something that's, has a huge costly component. If you're wrong, you're literally just building software for fun um, with yourself with like useless, you know, test dummy data. Like what's the worst thing that could happen, right? And so just kind of taking that first step and and not being worried about it. For me, it was the motivation came from just finally being so fed up because I was looking for a technical co-founder. And it's super difficult because you're the guy with like a business idea and you have to go to someone really, really smart and convince them to not work at Google and come start a company with you and you have no money and you never raised money before. It's just, it, it was such a difficult challenge. And for me, it was like, you know, if I could do higher level mathematics, like really how hard could it be to to learn how to program myself, at least enough where I can build like, you know, what they call the MVP or the prototype essentially. And then once I prove to people like, ha, see, I'm I'm on to something, then it might be easier to convince people. And so that's kind of the route I took.
1: That's super smart. And I feel the same way too, because I studied electrical engineering in college and I always said that EE E is way harder than CS. Yeah. But C S gets all the rewards. <laughs> So can we go back and can you reiterate your business model again? Because I think a lot of people will be interested in using your guys' services in the future when you
0: open it up to the public. Um, it actually is open up to the public already, and we already have existing customers for it. Um, we actually have two different business models, two different products, if you will. Um, depending on what the customer is looking for, one will be a better fit for them. The first model, the one I talked about at the very start of this, is basically, you know we tell you which properties to buy. And if you end up buying a property, you have the option to partner up with us and sign a contract with us. And the simple agreement is basically after three years, um, you know, you either have to sell the property or you can buy us out and keep it. Um, and if you sell the property and the value has gone up significantly, that's super easy to calculate. And whatever you know, gross profit you realize, we get 20% of that and you as a customer get to keep 80% of that. Um, And if you buy us out, what happens is in the contract, it stipulates we use the median home value of your neighborhood and we track that over the three year period. And let's say the median home value has gone up by, you know, 10 percent. Then we just apply that to your purchase price. And we say, you know, on paper, you've seen a 10 percent appreciation. So you can buy us out for 20 percent of that. Um, So those are sort of the the gain scenario. The loss scenario where the um, protection kicks in. Is basically if after three years, let's say we were wrong, you bought a property for you know 500k, and you know you end up selling it for 400k, then we would literally use our company's own capital and we just pay you 100 thousand dollars. We don't cover the closing costs, but we literally just at least make sure that you know um, the the purchase price you you got is guaranteed. So that's one product, right? That's for people who are really concerned about like maybe in the next three years something's going to happen in the real estate market and they want to be uh, protected financially and in exchange are happy to give up if they were wrong about that they're worried for nothing they're happy to give up any um, you know a portion of their gain um, to us as a company uh, the second business model is um, more straightforward and probably will be preferred by a majority of people so in this business model we actually give you money up front so essentially we give you 10 percent of the uh, home's listing value, and it's a non-refundable premium. So you can use that for your down payment, you can go out, buy a car, go on vacation, we don't really care. But in exchange for giving you that money, we have the right, but not the obligation to buy back that property from you three years later for your original purchase price, plus 5% of the appreciation, right? So what that means is, you know, if we were right, and uh, this, pro- this neighborhood starts growing very rapidly, um, we essentially get to buy back your property at a lower price than the market value, and we can later reflip it ourselves at the market value for a profit. Um, and in exchange for potentially us seeing this opportunity, we give you money up front um, so that you can you know spend it however you want, and most people, I believe, will end up using it for their down payment.
1: You said 10% kind of like a bonus or is that 10% goes towards the purchase price when you buy it back from them?
0: Um, the, the 10% is literally just a non-refundable premium. It's the price we pay you to get the right to buy back that house, um, you know, that property at a later time for a set price that we decide on today.
1: So for example, they say the set price is a million dollars. You're going to give them 100,000 today Three years later, give them a million dollars to buy the house and a 5% kicker on their profit?
0: Yeah, so we guarantee you if we buy it back from you, you at least get a 5% um, appreciation that you get to see. Um, And so essentially for us, we would not execute on this agreement unless the property has gone up by more than 15% in this sure. case. Um, and so if our predictions are right, and the neighborhood's going up on average by 40 to 60%, then of course, we would call on that option, and we end up making quite a bit of money. But you as a consumer, you're not kind of completely screwed, because we gave you the money up front that, you know, has real utility to you today. Um, and on top of that, at least we gave you five, uh, 5% five of the, the upside. So you see some upside. But in this scenario, we don't cover any losses. So if we were wrong and this property actually goes down in value. We just wouldn't execute on the contract and you just get to keep our upfront premium um, and then we just walk away from the deal.
1: That sounds super exciting. It's really smart business models. I uh, commend you for thinking of that.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. It's It's just kind of being forced to think creatively when you don't have like, you know, billions of dollars to deploy and buy properties yourself. That's right. So what's next for you guys? For us, essentially you know, just, just to scale and grow the company, reach more customers, um, because it's such a weird uh, business model. Most people are, they're like intrigued, but kind of hesitant because they're not quite sure exactly how it works. So for us, there's a lot of handholding at the beginning. We, um, you know, keep very close contact with all of our customers. They can call and email us anytime and we just help them out with any of their process. Um, and it's very easy for them to reach us essentially. And so. That gives them the comfort um, to leverage a new model like this to actually purchase real estate. Um, and then on the company side, you know, we've done some calculation and essentially um, we can get to, based on the expected value of these contracts, assuming our AI is correct over the next three years, we can essentially get $100 million in annual revenue uh, if we just have 4,000 profitable contracts per year. So think on that number for a little bit we don't need 40 million customers and we don't you know like a lot of other businesses just 4,000 of these contracts assuming they're all profitable will get us to that level and so for us it's about you know really kind of scaling organically and and finding you know customers that really want to try out these new different approaches to buying real estate and making sure they're happy and that you know, once they see the, the massive gains that they could see that they come back to us a second time and just continuously buy properties with us. Um, and so we think using that technique will scale up to the 4,000 a year, um, actually fairly soon. Uh, we're already at nine. So, you know, it's slowly but surely we're getting there.
1: That's super exciting. And, you know, honestly, I love hearing more prop tech stories, because real estate is a very old industry, mm-hmm. you know, it should be updated to 21st century levels.
0: Correct. Yeah. For for us, it was like, at least for me personally, you know, when I took that real estate, we had talked a little bit before the show, but when I was taking that real estate course in college and I was like, oh man, real estate seems really boring. I like not that interesting. A big part of the reasoning was because, you know, you would have, like, I actually tried to buy a property before in LA and I would go into situations where, you know, I would be in, because I didn't know exactly which neighborhood I wanted to be in. Um, I was just kind of filtering based on price. And because of that, I, for the open houses on Sunday, I would have to drive between five different neighborhoods. So I only saw five properties, but literally took like seven hours and I was just exhausted. And every time I saw a property, my agent would say something like, Oh, like if you make an offer for like 1.475, like you'll probably get the house. I'm like, Great, but like why one point four seven five? Why not just one point four like seven, like five thousand dollars a lot of money to me or why not just 1.4 like if the the seller accepts that offer i get a whole seventy five thousand dollars extra i could use to go i don't know buy a tesla or do something else like you know these small amounts actually like matter a lot to consumers um but i just personally didn't like that a lot of decisions in the industry was being made on just kind of like gut feeling and and just like people's personal preferences and not really backed up by a lot of data and you're very much right it's it's the 21st century and you know i think real estate should be one of those industries that it's about time for it to catch up
1: yep i'm pretty sure we're going to hear you in bloomberg and forbes and all these other uh, fortune magazines very soon with lofty ai so how could people get in contact with you
0: um, sure. You can just simply go to our website. So it's just www.lofty.ai and you can read about our business model. You can sign up, log in, contact us. There's literally a phone number there you can call and you'll be able to reach us and learn more about the business. Or you can also you know, find me on LinkedIn, um, send me a request. I'm happy to connect with people on there um, as well.
1: Well, Jerry, thank you so much for your time and letting us know about your exciting project. I'm really you know, excited to see where you guys go in the future. And yeah, I'll catch you guys around pretty soon. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. As an investor, you typically need to have knowledge of a neighborhood to do well. As we know, things vary from block to block, and it's hard to scale that local knowledge. Lofty AI eliminates that by using data to predict your highly appreciating locations and offers two interesting business models. They can either share 20% of the net profit in three years or they can give you 10% of your purchase price as an option to purchase the property back three years later for the same price you bought it for plus 5% of the net profit. Well, I hope you all learned a lot. You can find the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.